Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Milwaukee, start your engines. It's time to talk about all things racing. NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, and Formula One. This is the Final Inspection Show, presented by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove. Now, here's your host, Steve Saki. Hey, welcome back to the Final Inspection Show, brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove, along with our friends at David Ives Honda. Joining me once again, of course, is the Polish Python, Jeff Arlowski, and let's go through our predictions here. Uh, so we got Talladega this weekend. Uh, you have the Xfinity race, and I think Dennis said pick a Kyle Busch or a Joe Gibbs car. So I guess that would be what here, here, either Harrison Burton or Brandon Jones. In fact, we'll give him both. And then he took Kevin Harvick in the Cup race. Uh, Jeff, what about you? What, what do you think in the the, the Xfinity race? Xfinity race. I'm going to go with a uh, a guy that uh, not a lot of people, I'm sure, are picking. Give me fast pasta, Anthony Alfredo. You know, I was looking at him. He's been running pretty good lately. You know, he's been getting a few top fives here and there. He's had some issues uh, last uh, off and on a couple races, uh, some bad luck. But I, I don't think that's a bad pick. Uh, it's a it's a longer shot, but I, I would definitely think he's a top seven pick. Yeah, he's having one hell of a year, and he's had good speed most weeks. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, if there's ever a uh, throw darts at the wall and and pick a winner, I think Fast Pasta might get lucky today. All right, and then uh, what about uh, tomorrow in the cup race? Uh, Tomorrow in the cup race, I'm going to go with uh, the Polish Prince. Give me uh, big, bad Brad Keselowski. Grant K. Okay, I was looking at that one. I'm going to go with uh, uh, Justin Algar. I'm going to pick Chalk. Uh, Justin Algar in the Xfinity race. Uh, cup race, give me Kyle Busch. He has to win sooner or later, right? So I think I, I, I like him. Either him, but of course, you can't go wrong with the Hamlin or Harvick duel, who's been just pretty much winning everything else. So 
if you're a betting guy, go with those two. But uh, I just have a feeling about Kyle Busch in this one. Jeff, we certainly appreciate you taking time out. And uh, always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to John Orovitz who, with his latest book on West Racing. Of course, one of the dominant teams in the old kart era in the 1990s and early 2000s. And uh, also get a report of what's happened down, to, down in Indianapolis this weekend. Of course, we got the Harvest Grand Prix. They had a rare Friday afternoon race yesterday and of course they are racing today so we'll get a live update from John coming up next on the final inspection show Welcome back to the Final Inspection Show, brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove, along with our friends at David Ops Honda. And uh, joining us on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, it is John Orlovitz, longtime uh, member of the IndyCar scene, uh, going back to the kart days of late 1990s, and uh, of course, uh, coming out with a new book, neat book, uh, PacWest Racing's Rise and Fall. Pretty neat book, uh, which uh, celebrates kind of a, a Neat, or I should say, time flies. I should say the history of Pac West Racing. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you joining us. And uh, Pac West Racing, of course, is uh, was that's where uh, Scott Dixon got his start. A lot of people might not remember that, but uh, Scott Dixon was a was an up and coming driver, uh, and uh, was the for. Long time, long time was the youngest winner, if I recall, in the old kart circuit uh, when he won at Nazareth way back when, wasn't it? He did set that record, and you know, long time fans of the sport might remember when Dixon came over here in 1999. He was 18 years old, and he actually looked a lot like Paul Tracy at that age. He was kind of pudgy, yes. with you know, ginger complexion, and um, he drove a year of Indy Lights over here for Stefan Johansson's team, and. Stefan ended up taking over as his his manager and remains his manager to this day, in fact. And Johansson kind of negotiated a deal for him to join PacWest for the 2000 season. He was teamed with Tony Renna uh, at PacWest to run Indy Lights, and he had a really successful season. There was kind of an unspoken um, realism with PacWest's IndyCar team in the kart series. Mauricio Guzman and Mark Blundell were in their late thirties, kind of in the twilight of their career. And the team wasn't really achieving a lot of results on the IndyCar side. And they knew that there was a possibility for one or both of them possibly to move up. And, um, Dixon pretty comprehensively, uh, showed that he was the guy in 2000. He won six races in the Indy lights championship. I believe his comp- main competition that year was Townsend bell. And then he got promoted to the cart series in 2001. And, PacWest kind of recovered from the difficulties they had in, in the late 90s when the Mercedes Ilmore engine program wasn't competitive or reliable. And they had Toyota engines in 2001. And as you point out, it was a, it was a pretty circumstantial win uh, at Nazareth. Dixon was only making his third start in IndyCars. Um, he qualified near the back, and it was, a, it was a fuel mileage race. But it's interesting that even at that point in his career, when he wasn't even 21 years old yet, he was mature enough to manage a race that way. 
and it's kind of mm-hmm. become a hallmark of him. He's he's won, you know, he won one race for Pac West, and he's won fit, uh, 49 races now for Chip Ganassi, and he's closing in on Mario Andretti on the all-time win list, and it's it's kind of mystifying to see the slump that he's been in here for the last couple of races, and it'll be interesting to see whether he can snap out of it today. And this is a kind of interesting book. I'm looking forward to reading it because uh, uh, it, it has an in, a definite insider's look because uh, you worked for PacWest Racing as a PR rep. And, uh, you know, seeing that side of it, you certainly see a difference, uh, especially with the amount of time you're with the drivers. And back then, too, the media in certain ways was a lot bigger in certain ways, I think. Uh, and... It, to kind of walk us through that, how, how that really changed and, and what, what you initially thought when you when you finally got to the other side of the pit wall, so to speak, uh, on that side of racing. Well, there's no question that the kart series, up to the, the split with the Indy Racing League when Tony George branched off and created some conflict that I think a lot of people thought was unnecessary, um, the kart series was flying high in the 90s. You had Nigel Mansell racing here in 93 and 94. You had the emergence of Jacques Villeneuve, who went on to become a Formula One world champion. Uh, the kart series was, was really doing well in the mid-90s uh, with a, a ton of international attention and a ton of national and international media. Um, I got my start working in the media. Uh, I, I owe a lot of my career to Nigel Mansell in the sense that, that I got involved in 1993 and, and the English uh, media was desperate for content from Nigel Mansell, so I, I got to cover Nigel Mansell's first couple of years over here. But by the time 97 came around, I was in a position where I had to, quote-unquote, get a job, start pulling my weight. And so I I got a job with Pac West as, as the PR guy. And I honestly, if, if, if I'm truthful, I didn't really know what I was doing for the first half of the season. I always set out to be a journalist, and I kind of achieved my dream, but in a very small-time way. And Going to work for PacWest, I, I did it for two years. It ended up being great for my career because when I went back into the media in 1999, it was at a much higher level, and I was able to come in as the CART series correspondent for National Speed Sport News and do some work for, for uh, CART's uh, independent website. Um, the Pac West years were, were fascinating for me. Um, it was just so educational to learn about how a racing team works and just, you know, I always think thought of it as a sport. And of course I've grown up and realized that it's really a business and that's kind of unfortunate in some ways and good in others. But, uh, the two years at Pac West, it, it really gave me a insight into how teams work, how drivers work. Uh, what, you know, what, having known what the media looked for, it was, it was interesting to try to service that side. I mean, I didn't get a whole lot of satisfaction out of writing press releases or pitching stories. I wanted to actually write the stories, which is ultimately why I went back into the press, but unbelievably invaluable experience some really, really good times, uh, just especially doing functions with the drivers. I mean, if you get to spend a week with Mauricio Guzman in Brazil and, and he wins pole position for his home race, it's there's a lot of excitement that goes around it. and A lot of it was unexpected. I mean, I I honestly, when I went there, I didn't think Pac West had run that great. I saw a couple of guys who in Formula One, and I understand that Formula One is very dictated by the cars that people drive, but I saw a couple of guys that were midfielders in Formula One. But when they got over here and when they got the right package in 1997 with the right engine and the right tires and the right chassis and the right engineers, suddenly these guys were, were capable of winning races. And um, 
you know, PacWest doesn't have a pedigree or the heritage of Penske or Ganassi or Newman Haas, but at the same time, it's it's kind of unique in the sense that Bruce McCaw was one of the first outsiders from outside of racing who came in and, and tried to make a go of it as a business, and ultimately that failed, but I don't think it was really down to the team itself. It was down to the circumstances and some of the decisions they made. They They were too loyal to the Mercedes engine program, and ultimately that's one of the two or three key factors that, that put him out of business at the end of 2001. I, I do have to ask you this, uh, since you brought up Brazil and that, and it came up in conversation just a week or two ago with a, a bunch of buddies. We were chatting, and, and the subject of uh, Mark Blundell came up in that scary crash he had at Brazil. And this is a time in a time before Hans devices and software, software barriers where he had, a, if I recall, it was a throttle stuck as he was coming into uh, turns three and four at a very, very scary and one of the hardest hits I've ever seen in an Indy car. And, uh, King, and you know, when that happened, we were thinking the worst. I was, I remember, I was watching it with a bunch of guys, and we're, it was, it was a scary, scary crash. Kind of, can you give us a little background on that, or do you, do you have any background on that crash and Blundell and, and. On that. Well, I do. That was uh, that was in 1996. It was the first year that they raced it at Rio at the so-called Rick Mears actually called it a roval. He was the first guy to bring that word into the lexicon because the track was it was actually a trapezoid shaped track that had two short straights, two long straights, but it was uh, opposite symmetrical at each end. In other words, the radius of of turn one and two was the same as three and four, but but just in opposite. And the result of it is, is that the guys had to they had to brake pretty hard going into one, and they had to brake even harder going into four. And Blundell actually suffered a total brake failure going into turn four. Uh, the problem, and, and we actually document this with a with a pretty significant sidebar in the book, uh, a Pack West, or I should say a Galmer engineered uh, part failed, and it hadn't been proper. We kind of go that whole thing and. You know, not just that, but the, the emotional toll that something like that when when a project that you initiate ends up not working and and puts a guy in the hospital. Uh, it was a scary crash. Um, Mark was sidelined for a couple races, and um, it did lead to some changes in the sense that Pac West ended their relationship with Galmer and and took engineering operations under their own roof in Indianapolis under the head of a guy called Alan McDonald, who IndyCar fans might recognize as an engineer that's been with Team Green, and uh, Ray, I think he's with Ray Halls now. Um, so it, it, it led to changes within the team, but the other thing it did is it, it really spurred development of a soft wall. The next year in Brazil, they had, it was essentially like a tire barrier at a road course or a street course, and it was kind of banded together by this conveyor belt-like material, and it's it's kind of ironic that Gujelman was the first guy to test it in the race in 97 because he had a gearbox failure and he crashed and he said it was like sitting down in a chair the first time that he crashed into a soft wall. Now that particular application didn't work because they found the following year you know with the rubber band effect getting pitched back onto the track but it was an important step in the development of what uh, and it's ironic because I'm sitting out here at the roundabout outside turn one of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and the speedway was just so developmental, uh, instrumental, excuse me, in creating this. Uh, went into went into operation in 2002, and I think every oval racer 
around the world owes a debt of gratitude to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and NASCAR for their part in funding it. And, and of course, Dr. Dean Sicking and the University of Nebraska uh, team that actually did the research and came up with this life-saving device, which is between the between the safer barrier and the Hans device that protects drivers from basal skull fracture. Those are by far the two most important safety advances of the 21st century. Totally agree. Totally, yeah, totally agree on that. We're talking with John, John Orovitz on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline. His new book, Time Flies, A History of Pac West Racing, uh, available online. We'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, like, like you said, you're at the Harvest Grand Prix this weekend, and uh, you had a rare f- uh, Friday race, which, well, but let's face it, because of the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, IndyCar has to fill out the schedule, and they, they kind of did the doubleheader with a Friday-Saturday race. Uh, I was, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek saying it's probably going to be the lowest-rated lowest rated IndyCar race ever uh, because it was held on a Friday afternoon on the USA Network. But a very entertaining race. And, and you know, since they redid that oval in Indianapolis, and I think they did the right thing by getting the driver's input on how to properly maybe do a, a – to reconfigure the racetrack or tweak it as they did uh, from when it was a Formula One track. It certainly has become a race here, and then yesterday I thought was was a pretty entertaining race. And what, what, what can we uh, expect uh, today at the Harvest Grand Prix, John? I think we, we're looking at another struggling day for Scott Dixon. He didn't qualify very well again. He's, he's fortunate in the respect that Joseph Newgarden only qualified as well. But um, these guys are going to try to make chicken salad out of something else today when they're starting that far back in the midfield. Mm-hmm. Dixon's, his, his goal very simply has to be to finish ahead of, of Newgarden. If he can simply achieve that goal, I think he makes Joseph's uh, possibilities of taking the championship in, at St. Pete pretty much impossible. But at the same time, you know, Scott's starting 15th or 16th, I forget which it's a 75 laps instead of 85 laps and so most people should pretty comfortably be able to do it on this uh yesterday there was definitely a lot of strategy options so it's, it's i think we're looking at a track position day and dixon and i think newgarden will probably play it pretty conservative i think dixon from where he's at I think he can afford to gamble more and be one of the guys that maybe goes off strategy and stops early. Uh, it's It's been strange to see the number nine team kind of off in the last three or four races, uh, really since the since the first race at St. Louis. Um, you know, Scott spun at Mid-Ohio, which is an unforced error. He, he had another unforced error in yesterday's race that cost him a couple positions. and That's pretty uncharacteristic for him, and it just shows the – you know, the amount of pressure and the, and the tension that goes into these championship battles, and especially when a guy like Joseph Newgarden and the quality team like Penske gets a little momentum on their side, they can, they can really run with it. So Dixon's mission today is to kind of stop the bleeding. Um, if he can't finish ahead of Newgarden, he f- needs to finish within three or four, two, three, four positions of him and at least have a 25 or 30 point cushion going into the, the race at St. Pete where, uh, where anything other than a, you know, back of the field finish should should guarantee him the championship. Well, John, we lost you there for a second. Uh, we're talking with John Oriovitz uh, with his book, The History of Pac West Racing, 
And, uh, John, if you can hear me, uh, what's the easiest way to get that book? Well, I wish I could say there was a super easy way. Uh, if, if you go to my website, johnoriovitz.com, um, I should, I'm trying to re-engineer my website and get a direct link up right now. Um, you can leave a comment on there and, uh, with your email address or whatever, and I'll get, I'd be glad to get back to you. It is available through, uh, retail outlets. You can get it through Motorsport Collector in Northern Illinois. You can get it through Coastal 181. Uh, Racer Magazine, uh, is, is having a promotion on it right now. It's, it's nice if you order direct from me because it lines my pocket with a little bit more cash, which is always appreciated. And, uh, as a benefit, if you order direct from me, and again, just uh, my first name and last name at Comcast.net if you want to reach out to me um, directly. But uh, I do have book plates, uh, custom-made book plates for the books uh, signed by Bruce McCall that I'd be glad to sign as well. It's always a nice oh, excellent. bonus. Yeah, very good. Well, we will post that on our on our on our Facebook site and uh, put that up uh, later today on how to get the book. And John, we certainly appreciate you uh, taking time out. How's the weather down there today at uh, Indianapolis? It's funny. My girlfriend was just complaining that it's a little bit too warm. Um, it's, oh, it's okay. actually to me, it's actually perfect for what's being billed as the Harvest Grand Prix. It's mm-hmm. sixty degrees. Um, you know, partly sunny, partly cloudy. It's a it's a crisp fall day. It's the kind of day where I'm going to go watch a car race, drink a couple beers, and then go home and make a fire in the fire pit. Excellent. Well, we certainly appreciate you taking time out. And like I said, uh, make sure you get that Time Flies the History of Pack West Racing, a very interesting book and an interesting time in open wheel racing. Uh, make sure you get that. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Larry Janicek and have three questions with Larry coming up next on the Final Inspection Show. Final Inspection Show, Steve Zotke, along with joining me on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline from fashionable Pewaukee, Wisconsin. It is Larry Janicek. Welcome to the show, Larry. Uh, hello, Steve. Nice to talk with you again. Yes, it certainly has. Uh, we, we, we we missed you last week, but that was because of a scheduling conflict, but we certainly appreciate oh, no you taking time out. So what uh, do we have for this I, week? I'd like to mention for your uh, listeners that have uh, MAV-TV that tomorrow at 2 o'clock live on MAV-TV are the ARCA stock cars from the Mile Dirt Track at Springfield, Illinois. Kind of a neat deal. One one of my favorite events, yes. I love that. And, of course, our friend friend, uh, Jim Tradle, of course, will be on uh, doing that. Oh, great, great. So, So Steve... uh, Recently, it was announced that Sebastian Bourdais is going to drive for uh, A.J. Foyt uh, next year, and actually he's racing a Foyt car this weekend in Indianapolis. I wonder, do you uh, remember who won the last race, what driver did for an A.J. Foyt Indy, for the A.J. Foyt IndyCar team, the last race that was won for them? Yes, and, that was Takuma Sato at Long Beach Grand Prix where I was happily at that race. You know, I kind of thought maybe you were. I knew you went there a few times. And then, yeah, that was in and then you, 2013. 2013, then you have to go back to 2002 
prior to that were I believe it was Ayrton Dare at Kansas. Was wow, there's a name from the that. past. Isn't that? That is crazy. Ayrton Dare, so. Okay, then the uh, next question. Okay, I'm sorry. No, the I was just going to say, because uh, AJ had a good run in the IRL with uh, Kenny Brack and Billy Bolt, mm-hmm. among others, that, that that won races for him. And and then uh, Dare came in 2002 was the last win. And then, yeah, you got to go to Takuma Sato. Uh, very, uh, what they're trying to do, obviously, uh, Foyt with their engineering side is falling behind once again. And uh, you know, we, we've said this before in the past, you know, the, the biggest... Uh, even with Andretti Autosport at the beginning of the year, uh, had that slip up, and, and it's so easy to fall behind in the IndyCar series and the engineering side. And, and the biggest way you can really kind of uh, make advances, uh, and one of the few places where you can, because uh, you know with the spec cars and you know NASCAR and IndyCar, you're trying to control costs, but in a way you drive up costs. When, you, when you're so limited on what you can do with some of these cars, and that's on the shock side. So shock development is very, very important, and that's the one thing, obviously, you can see with the results. A.J. Foyt racing last uh, probably year and a half, two years, has not done well, even though Tony Kanaan did get a, a podium last year. But with uh, Bourdais coming on uh, this year, it kind of gives them a head start uh, w- with what they want to do for it, uh, next year with uh, Foyt racing. Sounds good. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, talked about the 1970s, uh, 10 years of IndyCar racing at that time. And uh, I'd like to just uh, talk a little bit today about the 1960s. Can you uh, list the uh, most champ car wins by drivers uh, during that uh, 10-year period in the 1960s? Uh, I, my guess would be... Uh, there should be three. I think it would go uh, Foyt, Andretti, and then maybe Roger Ward uh, would be in there. Oh, I know Roger Ward won a bunch of uh, one bunch. Not only you know like the '62 Indy 500, he won a few races at the Milwaukee Mile, but uh, uh, early in the '60s, Roger Ward was quite the powerful uh at the fairground tracks like at decoin and springfield won a bunch of them and then foyt kind of took over that crown and then andretti though too won a bunch of races uh, on the dirt too so the the, the three of those guys really uh kind of padded their score so to speak uh, on a track such as uh who's your hundred uh springfield and decoin well, you're as hot as a firecracker today because you got those top three guys nailed. So just to throw in, gotten an idea who might be fourth. So Floyd had 42, Mario had 29, Roger Ward had 15, and this next person had 10 in the 1960s. Oh, boy. Um... It'll probably be one of those. Oh, yeah, it makes sense now. Um, ten. I might need a hint. Brother, brotherly love. You just got to figure okay. out which brother. It okay, is. is it Al Alinzer then? Yep, yep. Al had ten. Uh, John Cock had seven. Branson had seven, and Bobby Unser had seven. But uh, you nailed well, the first three right away. Yeah, because Al, you know, Al dominated the 1970 season. But uh, I've always said. 
that really kind of kicked off at Milwaukee at the Bettenhausen 200. Donald Davidson likes to say the the Bettenhausen, the Tony Bettenhausen 200, which is a 200 mile race held in August at Milwaukee. You could was uh, you could kind of say the favorite for Indianapolis the following year, especially if they stayed with the same team, would be the winner of that race because that happened so many times, whether it's Pat Flaherty, Jim Rathman, I think, Roger Ward, among others, and Al Unzer was certainly one of them too. Uh, of course, uh, Al broke his ankle at, at Indianapolis screwing around on a little motorcycle during a rain delay. Was knocked out for about a month, and and when he came back, Mario Andretti dominated the beginning of the year, and of course winning the Indianapolis 500. But when it came to the end of August, and that year I think they had 30 races on on the schedule. Al really dominated the the last third of that season, and really going into 1970 was was hot when when they painted the car into Johnny Lightning. Uh, colors and just dominated in the 70 season and won the championship there but yeah it was uh uh he he won a bunch of races towards the end of 70 so you got that right on the head okay uh next question about three four weeks ago there was a really interesting f1 race uh because uh mercedes-benz red bull or ferrari was not the winning car you have any idea uh, when that previously happened? When was the last time uh, that a Ferrari Red Bull car or a Mercedes-Benz uh, won or didn't win? Excuse me. Does it go back to Vettel and and a Toro Rosso team at Monza? Uh, it was in, in uh, ten years Aust- prior. Austria, twenty thirteen. Was 146 Grand Prix in a row. Oh, it wasn't Liger. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see, who would but, that been? Uh, I give up. No, I I didn't have the driver's name. I just wanted to. It was 146 Grand Prix okay. before, and it was in uh, Austria in 2013, or Australia. 20, excuse me. Australia. Um, no, no, Austria. Austria, I'm sorry. It is Austria. Yeah. Austrian GP. Yeah, that was quite a while ago. I do not look these up on, on just so you know, but I am looking up this one. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Who won 2013 is... It was not held. Wait a second. Are you sure it wasn't Australia? I don't know. I just got the abbreviated AUST. Yeah, it's Australia then. Australian. Australian. Sorry for this. Yeah, this is good radio when you're looking stuff up online. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> probably wasn't the most clear question. Well, give me, give me one more question while I look this up. Okay, there's been uh, 14 drivers that have won both a NASCAR Cup Series race and a Champ Car IndyCar race. 14 guys. How many of them do you think you can name? Oh, boy. And if you're wondering, it's Kimi Rackin and won a Lotus Renault in 2013. Oh, okay. 
Oh wow! So I forgot about that. Yeah, I, that was a I long would not stretch. have guessed that. Yeah, hundred and forty-six races. That's interesting. I would not have guessed that. It would have been a, a long, dead, a lot of dead space under dead air on the radio for me to guess yeah, that. One. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we got Cup and IndyCar winners, correct? Yep. All right. Well, you got to go with. Uh, let's see. Foyt, Foyt's the easy one. Mario's an easy one. Uh, you would have Dan Gurney, uh, Montoya, of course. And let's see. This is where it gets a little more difficult now. Um, it's probably some newer people. Um, well, actually, there's some older. There's some older ones too, uh, like oh. uh, in the '60s. And nineties. Uh, yeah, I'm just having a brain fart now because I'm thinking of guys like because I just watched the '86 uh, uh, Watkins Glen and I've totally had forgotten Al Unzer. That was his last Winston Cup start. He subbed for Buddy Baker in that Crisco. Oh wow, Oldsmobile. Yeah, totally had forgotten about that. So now I'm just have visions of Al Unzer in, in my head. Um, guys, I won both. See, I, you think I can guys think that race both? I mean, I'm thinking Tim Richmond, but Tim Richmond never won an IndyCar race. Right, uh, right. Bobby Unzer never won a NASCAR race. In fact, Bobby Unzer only raced one Winston Cup race. That was the 69 wow. uh, Daytona 500. Uh, yep. Al Unzer, though, raced a few, uh, but never won. Yeah. Uh, Oh, oh, oh uh, Jim Herdebees. How can I forget Jim Herdebees? Right, yeah. Jim Herdebees is one. Yeah, he won uh, the 66 Atlanta race. Yeah, 66 Atlanta, right. I was at Atlanta at 65 for the Indy cars. Uh, so here, so we got here, here you go if you want yeah. me to run through the list. Sure, go ahead. Okay, you got Foyt, Gurney, Parnelli, Robbie oh, Gordon, yeah. John Andretti, Montoya, Mario, Almondinger. Mark Donahue, Herdebees, Johnny Mance, Johnny Rutherford, Ooh. and they so they actually counted that. Uh, yes, uh, hundred miler. Yeah, at Daytona, Chuck Stevenson and Tony Stewart. Chuck Stevenson, that's interesting. Yeah, I was really surprised at that. Yeah, and I I'm wondering if that. maybe they if they might have counted. Uh, um, no, I, no, I was, I was probably, a, he probably switched over because he had, uh, he had actually retired, uh, retired from AAA. And I wonder if he did some stock car racing, maybe to pay the bills or something for those who don't remember Chuck Stevenson, very underrated driver, raced Indy cars, uh, came up through the spring car ranks and whatnot, uh, in the fifties, uh, won the first paved uh, IndyCar race at the Milwaukee Mall, but not only that, but also won the last dirt dirt uh, race at Milwaukee and actually lived in Milwaukee for a few years. Uh, oh, really? In, in I the, didn't know that. Yeah. I knew about the, yeah, he did. the last and yep. first, but I never realized he lived there. His son, his son is still around Chuck Stevenson Jr. and is a, loves the blues and bluegrass as a guitarist. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's yeah. a good combination. Yeah. So, um, but interesting, uh, yeah, Johnny Rutherford, yeah, raced in the Daytona 500 before he actually raced in the Indianapolis 500. 
That's a bit yeah. of trivia too. So, all right. Well, Larry, we certainly appreciate you taking time out. All this good stuff. All this fun going in the Wayback Machine. And uh, I did not think I would mention uh, Kimi Rackinen and Lotus Renault uh, in, in yeah, the show today. But we were able to do that. That's one of the reasons why you're on the show. But, Larry, thanks again. I appreciate you coming on. And we'll, we'll chat again next week. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Take care. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with from RacingNation.com, Fast Eddie Lapine. So we got some news, of course, in the world of road racing, uh, in Formula One and IMSA. Coming up next on the Final Inspection Show. Welcome back to the Final Inspection Show, brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove, along with our friends at David Obsonda, joining us on the Great Midwest Race, uh, on the Midwest Bank Hotline from RacingNation.com. It is Eddie Lapine. Welcome back to the show, sir. Hey, guys. How are you? I was uh, sitting in my car trying to push the uh, button to answer the question on Jeopardy. I knew it was going to be like five minutes earlier. Did you? I, I have I, totally I forgotten about that. I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I was like, is this frustrating or what? I could have won Jeopardy today. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time, you know, I'm going to call in with a trivia question. But uh, basically my stuff in a nutshell today is the bombshell that hit uh, with Honda pulling out of Formula One. As yeah. we wrote well, in Racing Nation... A while back, I, I'm going to post the story again about the, the situation of F1 right now and, and the status of it. And it's very mind-blowing what's going on now in racing. And I think the pandemic has really expedited uh, the exit of a lot of manufacturers in racing right now. And I think that's the big problem. Uh, they're looking at... Uh, budgets and stuff and that's why you're seeing porsche pulling out of imsa at the end of the year uh mazda was the latest announcement going to one car for next year and the big bombshell which i think is really huge is honda pulling out of formula one um it's four cars that are affected by that and christian's horner's explanation i mean he said he had a backup plan already in the works but I still think that that's really huge when you only have a handful of manufacturers in this uh, Formula One day and age. Uh, when we go back to what I said five years ago about Formula E and all the manufacturers getting in, involved in that, we can see that they're exiting to go to that now with electric being a, a mainstream thing now across the world so I yeah guess i thought it was interesting I, 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 I thought it was interesting with the honda announcement that you know they, they, they've they have committed on delivering a new power plant for next year for the red bull team in alfatari in 2021 now obviously 
you know, they haven't said, you know, they, they didn't decide to go, well, let's quit uh, Formula One, but let's come out with a new engine. This engine's been in the works for a while. And it, it, like 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 what you said, Eddie, you know, the, the, the development and everything of this new engine for 2021, and then you got the pandemic and all the costs associated with this, there has to be that, that we're especially when you understand how much money Mercedes has been hemorrhaging to win these world championships, Honda has to probably has to say, you know, enough is enough. Let's, 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 this is it now. You know, we're, we'll come up with this engine. Their goal is to win the world championship next year. I don't know how that's going to happen uh, with Mercedes, you know, being a 900 pound gorilla in, in formula one, but you know, they're, they're, they're going to step back. And this isn't the first time they've done this. They did this in the 60s. They did this in the, in the 90s, too, where, where they were involved as an engine manufacturer in the 90s with McLaren, too. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this happens. And then also, Eddie, uh, with Mercedes or uh, with Mazda, I, I think it's actually kind of a win for IMSA with them just only cutting back to uh, one car because I think you and I were speculating they might pull out entirely. Well, totally, and I think that that's the problem that's happening now. I mean, these car manufacturers are looking at overall budgets, and if you're not yeah. selling cars and you can't get cars to sell, it's going to affect motorsports, and you're seeing it in all forms of motorsports now. And unfortunately, I think you know this is going to be detrimental to motorsports. You're seeing it, and yeah, and the so, we're going to have to Eddie, we certainly it. appreciate you taking time out. And make sure you check out Eddie's stuff at RacingNation.com. Good stuff as always. And we'll talk to you next week, Eddie. Thanks for joining the show. You've been listening to the Final Inspection Show brought to you by Great Lakes Dragway and David Hobbs Honda. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.